Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Bob Mitchell is the owner of Unity Rig Equipment in the Alberta oil sands. How difficult is it in today's climate to run a business in the oil energy sector? Wait till you hear Bob Mitchell and his open letter to Canadians. And how do Quebecers feel about Alberta oil and pipelines? We spoke with Germain Belzile of the Montreal Economic Institute about a poll they did of Quebec residents, not politicians, residents. Dan McTague is a former Liberal Member of Parliament, 18 years. And Mr. McTague argues the Trudeau government are destroying social programs and health care. And Laurie Ackerman is the mayor of Fort St. John, British Columbia. You'll hear Mayor Ackerman speak about the energy sector and about climate and an open letter she wrote to all Canadians in 2016. And Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun with his view of the Ford administration in Ontario and the shooting on the Dan Ford. We're going to begin with Bob Mitchell. Bob is an Albertan and a 45-year-old, or 45-year, rather, Alberta oil field veteran. Mr. Mitchell has traveled the world's oil-producing regions. And after several conversations with Mr. Mitchell about the challenges of being in business in the oil sands, we agreed that he has a message for his fellow Canadians. So this Alberta oil sands business owner, his company is Unity Rig Equipment, Inc., has written an open letter to his fellow Canadians, and he joins me on the air. Bob, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. I learned all you today. I'm 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 doing fine. How are you doing? Great. Great. I learned a lot from you over the last several days as we spent a lot of time on the phone talking about what it is you're facing and what your fellow entrepreneurs in Alberta are facing when it comes to oil and oil development and energy and getting the pipelines built, just getting the situation to be where it is. But what struck me is what it is you as business people, as entrepreneurs, are dealing with. Now, you wrote a letter to your fellow Canadians. I want you to read the letter, but is there something you want to say before we do that? No, I, I just, you know, it's not just the business owners. I mean, the biggest effect that this that, that these policies are having is on the workers. You know, in particular, these smaller communities, these people are absolutely going to be devastated by what's happening going forward. Absolutely devastated. And that's C-69 and C-48. Absolutely. Both of them. Both of them affects <clears throat> affects um, their, you know, their well-being. So can I ask you to then to just, and I've read the letter. I know it's going to make an impact on people. Would you read your letter to your fellow Canadians, please? Certainly. To my fellow Canadians, congratulations on passing Bill C-69 and Bill C-48 through the House of Commons yesterday. I think there are a few things to recognize before the celebrations begin, however. There seems to be an impression by some people in this country that by effectively strangling the energy industry, somehow you have ejected the oil czars and big oil from their ivory towers in downtown Calgary. In reality, though, the ivory towers have been empty for several years already. Any remaining of the supposed oil barons left have been relegated to the warehouse districts of whatever field operations that still exist. Most of these dedicated entrepreneurs have already been working for free for some time in order to continue to hold together what is left of their life's work. 
I think it is important to understand exactly who these new legislations are going to affect. The energy industry in the West is the lifeblood of most of the small rural communities across Alberta, Saskatchewan, northern BC, and Manitoba. It is the fuel that has always kept them alive. These two bills passed yesterday are going to effectively destroy the lives and families of all the little motel owners, the barber shops, the restaurants, the laundromats, small local contractors, um, little grocery stores and gas stations, and all the people they employ in almost every community across our provinces. I am finding it hard to believe that there are some people in this great country of ours that think this destruction makes any sense relative to the minuscule difference all these people make to our overall carbon footprint. I am of the opinion that people that supported this legislation by our federal government do not fully understand the implications and the unintended consequences of these ill-fated measures. I think that regardless of where you are located in Canada, there is an understanding that at least for now, and probably for the next 20 to 30 years, fossil fuels will primarily be the most cost-effective way to heat our homes, feed our cars, transport trucks, railways, and in many areas, the power supply. Oil prices are currently quite low, and in some areas, even lower than the cost of production, but as seen in the not-too-distant past, can fluctuate wildly higher depending on geopolitical events around the world. I wonder if the supporters of these measures have thought of the massive transfer of our wealth to countries and corporations outside of this country, many of which we as Canadians do not ideologically agree with. I wonder if Canadians realize that because of our safety and regulatory framework in the energy industry, we are the highest cost jurisdiction in the world to operate in. From the perspective of a 45-year energy industry veteran that has traveled extensively around the oil fields of the world, we are categorically far superior to practices being utilized anywhere else on this planet. Why would we as Canadians want to purchase our energy needs from anywhere else? The energy industry requires a highly trained group of individuals to operate safely and effectively. Due to the environment the industry is currently facing because of some of the made in Canada and certain third-party outside influences, the industry is unstable and even toxic. If we effectively kill this industry now, it may not be possible to reactivate it once it is realized what a tragic mistake we've made. This legislation going forward is absolutely going to put the province of Alberta into a have-not position. And I wonder if the taxpayers of Ontario and Quebec have fully thought out the implications of the burden to be put on them by the negative impact of a province that previously gave to the rest of Canada and will now need to take back just to live. A prosperous Alberta economy economy can and should be a vital dynamic engine of growth for the entire country as it has always been. Up to this point, many Alberta families have hung on as best they could by working at whatever they could find just to get by while hoping for changes to the challenging economic environment we have found ourselves in. This new legislation will kill any optimism that all of these people have been waiting for. Has anyone thought of where all the professionals are going to go in order to find employment in their respective fields? They are going to be hungry, 
and they're going to be on your doorstep and competing with workers from other provinces that do have work. In summary, these decisions being made in Ottawa are, are going to fundamentally destroy the very fabric of life of your fellow Canadians in our oil-producing provinces that depend on the energy industry to survive. We in the industry are not complainers. We only ask that our brothers and sisters of this country recognize who exactly these decisions are going to affect. Regards. Bob Mitchell, a proud Albertan and a proud Canadian. Thank you for that. And as I read your letter, before you read it on the air, as I read it last night at home and read it again this morning, I I read, Bob, what I've been hearing for far too long now, and that it's become, at least perceptually, an East versus West or West versus East situation in Canada, which is not being helped by the current federal government which the federal government, current government, seems to want to feed. And that's my view of it, that they're feeding this, this, this conflict, this, this uh, antagonism almost, that, 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 that is growing between East and West. We talk about the Western disconnect. But is, do you get that sense? And we have about 30 seconds before we take the break, then we'll continue. Does it feel to you... And if I asked your fellow entrepreneurs or the, the workers in the, in, the, in the oil fields in Alberta and Saskatchewan, do you think I would hear from them, yeah, uh, there is an East versus West or West versus East mentality that's growing? Would I hear that? Uh, it, I, I'm not sure that's a proper way to... East versus West is, is not... Ex- it's more like the West versus the federal government, I think, is a okay. better way of describing okay. it. Because I, I was going to say to you that when I look at my emails, and I've mentioned this on the air on a number of occasions, when I look at emails that come to me from Eastern Canada or Central Canada, from folks who just send me a note or respond to something that they've heard on the air, there's a great deal of empathy for the, their fellow Canadians in Alberta and Saskatchewan. There's a great deal of concern about what's happening to their fellow Canadians in the oil industry. There's no dismissiveness. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you said, and I'm interested that you said, it's more a case of the West versus the government. You know, we're, we just don't understand here. We really don't understand why people aren't sticking up for us, why they aren't standing up and making their voices in the East hear us you know why aren't they raising their voices and saying this is wrong what's happening here is wrong and we need to change it you know for years we know politically we have little voice out here the voice has to come from the east we have to make sure that the taxpayers of ontario and quebec understand that this is killing us out here they need to stand up for us now it's time how difficult is it for companies um large, small, medium size, to just stay in business in the current climate, and how difficult do you project it's going to be, talking about oil and energy companies, how difficult is it going to be to stay in business, given what the federal government just passed? It's already, I mean, the industry here is virtually hand-to-mouth now. I mean, it, it, um, to, to say it's limping would be an understatement. 
you know, the, most of the entrepreneurs here, I mean, and, and most of the industry is entrepreneurs. I mean, certainly we have, you know, some fairly large facilities that operate in Fort McMurray and whatnot, but that's not the bulk of where the people are employed. The bulk of the people are employed, employed with the, um, you know, with the conventional, more conventional type of oil production. Natural gas is another issue that, I mean, we're selling natural gas. I don't know what, the, what people in the East are paying for natural gas, but in some cases, the producers here are having to give their, their gas away just to get it into a pipeline. And if you shut a natural gas well in, trying to reactivate it afterwards is probably not going to happen. It won't be cost effective. But, I mean, natural gas here is selling for as little as $0.07 cents a gig. Seven cents a gig. I mean, what are people paying in Ontario? Why can't that gas go there? You know. Well, why I, can't I it go there? Why can't the oil come uh, from Alberta straight through the pipeline, uh, Energy East, through Quebec into New Brunswick to the Irving Refinery? That's the question demands an answer. But the federal government, as you know, only too well, is interested in passing legislation out in, in, in British Columbia that's going to affect uh, British Columbia and, uh, and of course, Western Canada. But they hope it's going to create voting uh, opportunities for them, uh, election opportunities for them. For for the, for the people in the province, for the for the energy producers, this is nightmare world. Just this think of what you're talking about. I mean, we've got an awful lot of people right now that are trying to stay in the industry that are only working one or two days a week just to stay with where they're at. And it's it's a cost of where we have petroleum engineers that are driving taxi cabs and school buses. I mean, it, this is. Unbelievable. I mean, the the numbers and the statistics that come up, that are published don't really relate to what the real environment actually is. I mean, you look at the unemployed. Sure, we have two hundred thousand people unemployed, but what about the other hundred and some odd thousand people that are underemployed? That 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 are doing all of these things to just try to survive. Here, and it's not just Bob for things to change. It's going to affect the whole country. I mean, it's already affecting the whole country. And we're not just talking about people who are complaining because things are not as good as they used to be. This is, a, this is impactful on, on, on the social fabric of the provinces. This is survival, Roy. We are yeah, in survival, survival. Mode. And wow. we need help. We need help. And we need it from our brothers out east. And it's, not be- and it's not because the, uh, the industry standards are not the best in the world. They are. Absolutely. I mean, the regulatory framework that we have here to operate the oil and gas industry here is staggeringly expensive on the operators that are out there working on these oil wells. In the 10 I seconds. Mean, our framework, regulatory framework, is onerous and it's very expensive. In, and we're the only ones in the world doing it. In the 10 seconds I have left, how long is it yes, going sir. to be possible for entrepreneurs, many of them, to stay in business? If things don't change. Well, uh, things don't change. I mean, it, it's like a it's like a domino effect is what's happening. I mean, there, companies are failing every day here, okay. and then every time one falls, there's another five right behind it that, that are caught in the same okay. the sound same downdraft. I mean, it, Bob, who knows? It's Bob, bad. Bob, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for writing the letter. We're going to retweet the letter, the audio for it, in uh, or tweet it out in just a couple of minutes. We will stay in touch. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening, Roy. Bob Mitchell. And the way it is for the folks in the oil patch. The news this week has all been about what's happening in the energy sector with the Liberal government on Monday, Mr. Trudeau's government, declaring climate change an emergency. On Tuesday, declaring Trans Mountain Extension was going to be built. And on Thursday, stewarding through C-69 and uh, C-48 through the uh, through the Senate, 
And with the results that we're being uh, made privy to across the country from different groups and different people and different folks who were affected by this. So a lot has been said about the province of Quebec. And last weekend, as I've been saying, we talked to two of the six premiers who sent a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau warning that C-69 and C-48 could issue become a national unity issue. Mr. Trudeau doesn't think so. But the issue of Quebec came up in the discussions with Blaine Higgs and Jason Kenney, two of the premiers on this program last weekend. Tomorrow, Scott Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan, is going to be joining us. And I suspect the issue of Quebec and equalization payments and the refusal by the by the government of Quebec to consider Energy East and a pipeline moving from Western Canada into the province of New Brunswick and the Irving refinery in uh, St. John, which is refining that foreign oil we were talking about, 850,000 barrels a day. We're buying, Mike. We're buying, Mike. So you got one set of rules for the East and one set of rules for the West, but you're only preaching to the West. Fair enough. That's the way you feel. That's the way you feel. Well, last December, we spoke with Germain Belziel, senior associate researcher for the Montreal Economic Institute, about a poll that the MEI commissioned through Leger polling of Quebecers and how the average Quebecer, how the people in Quebec feel about pipelines and about oil and about foreign oil versus domestic oil. And Mr. Belziel rejoins us on the program. I, I, it's good to talk to you again, and thank you so much, Jermaine. Thanks for joining us again. Well, thank you very much for having me. So let's go back to last December when you released the information on that poll. 53% of Quebecers would like to see Quebec develop its own oil industry and own oil resources as opposed to um, importing it. Talk to us about that first, please. That's right. And in fact, um, Quebecers generally, uh, maybe with the exception of some elite in Montreal, uh, which is disconnected, in fact, from the majority. But most Quebecers, especially in the region, uh, believe in uh, resource development. And in fact, a large part of, of uh, Quebec outside of Montreal lives from uh, natural resources. Should be should it be uh, um, uh, hydroelectricity, wood, uh, mining, or, or, or others? And they are in favor of developing our resources, including, uh, in fact, oil and gas, uh, if we have some, and, and if it's exploitable with a, with a profit. Okay, so then you've got, what are the other 47% saying, by the way? Well, um, uh, about half of that uh, is opposed. Uh, they're mainly in Montreal, and the other half, well, they uh, probably suffer from so, sort of a, a cognitive dissonance because uh, uh, they'd rather us uh, not consume any resources at all, I guess. Well, they prefer not to answer it. Okay, so let's talk about how Quebecers feel about oil and and about oil traveling through the province of Quebec. There was one number that I remember, and I'm trying to put it back into focus. 66% of Quebecers said what? They said that they preferred to get their oil. If it's not produced in Quebec, they would prefer their oil to come from um, Western Canada. And in fact, it's already the case. In fact, we we get more than half of our oil from Western Canada since uh, uh, Enbridge 9B was, uh, which the direction of the 9B was changed. So we, the majority of our oil already comes from uh, from Western Canada, and Quebecers are largely at ease with this uh, this number. Only seven percent think that they, they would prefer their oil to come from the United States, and after that, it's three percent for Algeria, one percent for other countries. So, with a large, 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 large majority, Quebecers prefer their oil from to be Canadian, in fact. And what are they saying about pipelines? About additional pipelines passing through or crossing through Quebec? 
Well, we asked the uh, Quebecers, uh, since we have to get oil from uh, from somewhere, how should it be transported? 45% said pipelines, uh, 14% uh, trains, uh, or trucks, 13% trains, 9% boats. By the way, 13% for trains, that was a surprise for me after Lac Megantic, in fact, after the disaster over there. Yes. So the total of uh, trucks, trains, and boats is 36% compared to pipelines, 45%. So Quebecers understand it's, it's the safest and best way to transport oil. So by majority, Quebecers prefer Western Canadian oil, 66%. And by majority, and a significant majority, 45% prefer pipelines over tanker trucks, 14%, trains, 13%, and boats, 9%. They're directly at odds with not only the current federal, uh, Quebec government, but the past Quebec government as well, are they not? Well, yeah. Uh, well, the, the past premier, Monsieur, Mr. Couillard, uh, met uh, uh, Christ on the road to Dam- Damascus, I guess, uh, when he went to a COP21, uh, I, I believe, and he came back from there. Uh, with, uh, he was transformed. In fact, he became an environmentalist, and he was opposed to any uh, development of oil and gas. But the, the current premier, I would, I would guess, is better disposed. Um, he would like us to, uh, and he said that before the election, he would like us to develop our own resources. And, um, but he, he's, he's a politician, and he's, very, he's counting votes all the time. So uh, if he can be sure that he'll gain more votes outside of Quebec, uh, outside of Montreal, by, uh, by allowing pipelines far from um, big inhabited cities, well, uh, I, he might be persuaded to take, uh, take the gamble, in fact. So you think it's possible somehow, and considering the fact that um, equalization payments to the province of Quebec will be $13.1 billion 2019-2020, um, and Alberta, Saskatchewan, Newfoundland, and Labrador uh, receive nothing, and they are the producing nation, uh, provinces, but they're not doing very well. Uh, you, you think that um, the current premier might um, somehow be persuaded, if it doesn't cost him too many votes, to cautiously agree to Energy East Pipeline? It's quite possible. For, for the moment, uh, uh, my belief is that the um, Premier Legault does not want to uh, impose a, a carbon, uh, carbon tax or wants to make, uh, maintain it very low. Uh, and polls have shown us that Quebecers are like other Canadians. They don't want to pay more for the gasoline and for, for the fuels in general. Um, so uh, a, a very, um, uh, let's say, a symbolic gesture, such as opposing pipelines, doesn't cost him any votes, probably, and uh, doesn't alienate uh, the, uh, let's say, the environmentalist crowd. So it's, for the moment, for him, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a winner. But it won't be all the time, and especially if there's pressure for uh, changing the uh, equalization formula. And this pressure is building right now. And Mr. Legault, when he was in the opposition, openly said many times that he thought that Quebec should do that. Quebec should wean itself from equalization, but uh, through development. And well, development means uh, resources, uh, amongst others. So he, he might be persuaded, but for the moment, it, I think he, uh, he he's afraid to lose votes with uh, with pipelines. But uh, if he had a, a counter pressure, such as uh, 
uh, let's say, the danger of losing part of the equalization uh, payments, well, that might change, be a game changer. And also, I really, really believe that we should go forward with uh, energy corridors. Energy East in Quebec was really badly done. It went through Montreal. It went, uh, uh, it, it went uh, uh, over uh, something like 1,300 uh, creeks and rivers. And so it, it shouldn't have been uh, done the way it was done. And if it was done more in the north, uh, well, I think it would be much, much more acceptable for most uh, Quebecers. So a different route and uh, the adjacent or accompanying changes in reality, re-equalization um, payments might do the proverbial trick. You, you know, of course, uh, the, Mr. Kennedy, the new Premier of Alberta, is since C-69 and C-48 made it through the Senate, said, well, this makes it far more likely that we'll be looking at a referendum on equalization payments. So that may be the last domino that falls. And, and, and also, it's, uh, it's interesting to remark that uh, Mr. Legault himself is opposed to C-69. Uh, not necessarily for the same reasons as uh, Premier Kenny, but there's clearly here a possibility of, uh, let's say, a collaboration between uh, Western Canada and Quebec. And in the past, it's happened uh, when uh, uh, the federal government, for example, was centralizing powers. Well, this did not uh, go uh, well in Quebec and in Western Canada. So there are possible possibilities of finding uh, ways to collaborate and to do things together. And I think that uh, this is something that Premier uh, uh, Kenny should pursue very actively. Germain, thank you so much for the time. It's good to revisit these numbers and see what Quebecers really think and what they want, what their expectations are, because ultimately, as you say, politicians count votes and lead the, the, the voters are the ones who will lead the politicians. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the invitation. Dan McTague served in the Liberal governments for 18 years, and uh, he's also someone who, over the years, has saved a lot of people a lot of money through his knowledge of the petroleum industry. Dan joins us on the Roy Green Show. It's good talking to you, my friend, and what do you, uh, what do you say in reply to Mr. Trudeau, who argues C-69 and C-48 is exactly what we need? Well, he's basically just signed the uh, death warrant of the uh, energy industry in Canada. I just want to be really clear with Canadians who think this is a, you know, sort of a flippant remark or a remark in the extreme. No one in the right mind is going to invest a single penny in Canadian pipelines, much less the ability to develop our oil sector if they know they can't get it to market. More importantly, if the existing rules, which Mr. Trudeau and his company and this band of friends over in the NDP and the uh, the Green and the Bloc who hate fossil fuels so much, uh, think that uh, the current situation is acceptable. Uh, that is to say that uh, you know, with current so-called easy rules, you still can't get one single pipeline built like Trans Mountain without all the uh, variety of characters coming out of the woodworks, mostly foreign funded to attack and to undermine our uh, regulatory process by which we get pipelines built, then uh, we're kidding ourselves. We are likely looking at a very serious uh, drawback in terms of... Uh, uh, investments in Canada. That's already happened. $40, $50 billion on average uh, compared to 2014 uh, when we used to bring in about $80 billion bucks a year in foreign investments and investments around the world to our energy sector, now down to about $35 billion, and that's likely to sink further. So anybody who thinks this is funny, this is cute, this is about the West, or as Mr. Trudeau, I, I think shamefully described it as an attempt at uh, using national unity. Of course, forgetting the fact that he in 2012 did the exact same thing, except more specifically, if he didn't get his way, he'd be like Quebec, he'd pull up uh, the stakes and go with Quebec and separate. 
something that he seems to want to forget. The reality is that he's hurt Canada badly here. And if Canadians willfully vote for him and his band and friends over in the Green and the NDP and the Bloc and all those other folks, uh, then they're sadly mistaken because they're basically undermining the future of this country financially and now likely about to touch off a constitutional crisis. You know, I, I agree with you about the constitutional crisis. We're hearing Mr. Kenny, uh, Premier Kenny, saying just about exactly that. We've had uh, Premier Mo, who's going to be on the show tomorrow, say in the past, do we still have a country or do we have a country? And we've had the Premier of New Brunswick just before Christmas last year, Blaine Higgs, saying we have to decide whether Canada is a nation or an ocean. They're not fooling around. Well, they're not fooling around. I think a lot of open-minded, smart people are actually taking the position that uh, if you want this industry gone, how are you going to replace it? That's 20% of the economic activity in this country. The oil and gas industry is by far and away our biggest uh, industry. It is our biggest exporter. It lies at the heart of why we have been so successful as a nation. If we don't have a problem with losing our prosperity and giving away our social programs, which these, these these kind of investments, these kind of revenues pay for, then by all means say so. But don't turn around, as I see some labor leaders uh, that I've seen on Twitter and others trying to mimic and say, oh, the fossil fuel is dead and over. Do they not realize that their own unions have heavily, he- heavily invested in the oil industry itself? Do they not recognize that uh, we have a standard of production of energy in this country that is second to none in the world? And do they not realize where the bread is buttered? Because at the end of the day, when the government's out of money, it either has two choices. It either goes into uh, deficit debt financing, which this federal liberal government is doing, uh, which could mirror what the previous government did when I joined the Liberal Party back in 1981, and that is to borrow to such a point that everyone winds up with 21% mortgage rates. If that's the route we want, including the inability to support our social programs and pay for our pensions and to pay for our hospitals, and yes, pay for our teachers, then at the end of the day, uh, we're likely to see a real significant drawback in the standard of living in this country. And I think Canadians had better wake up, wake up damn soon. As a Liberal of 38 years, I never thought I would see the day where I'd have to come out against my own party. I have, I will, and I am. Because this is absolutely, uh, this is madness. And I, I, unfortunately, I think uh, it is taking a policy uh, way too far. Uh, and it is really trying to bend over to a particular group uh, in, this, in this world that wants to use Canada as some kind of a weird uh, experiment in which they can get away with trying to change uh, to the wonderful world of renewables and uh, eschew fossil fuels, okay. while at the same time undermining our very country. Dan, I always thank you for the time. Uh, I can, I, I can, I, I don't know, just sense the emotion. I feel what you're saying. Thank you again. Thanks for coming on. Today. Good to be here. Thanks, again, Roy. Bye, Bye. Dan McTague, 18 years a Liberal member of Parliament, speaking his mind on C69 and C48. Now, a Canadian mayor sounded the alarm in 2016 with an open letter to British Columbians and more, I think, general to Canadians. She is Mayor Laurie Ackerman of the city of Fort St. John, British Columbia. She also appeared before Canada's Senate on the 13th of May of this year as the Senate was debating or at least hearing from people uh, on uh, Bill C-69. And with the Senate signing off on C-69, it's called the Impact Assessment Act and the Canadian Energy Regulator Act and C-48, the oil tanker ban. What? is waiting for us. I just want to read a couple of lines from Mayor Ackerman's open letter in 2016. 
And then we're going to talk to her. So let's talk about the economy, Mayor Ackerman wrote. Oil sands development is expected to contribute over three or four trillion dollars to the Canadian economy over the next 20 years. Four hundred and five billion could be collected in personal, corporate and indirect taxes just from Western Canada natural gas production in the next 20 years. This is money for health care, education, and infrastructure. The resource sector is the foundational stone upon which the Canadian economy was built. And it is as important today as ever. Um, the letter from a resource town mayor. And it was the, the first line in that letter which caught everybody's attention. The, imagine the headline, USA stops importing Canadian oil and gas. Wait a minute. They're our only customer. Mayor Ackerman, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you too, Roy. Thank you for the opportunity. Before we get to the letter from 2016, let's fast forward to today. Sure. You, you take the issue of climate change extremely seriously. We absolutely do. And you look at the reality of the energy resource sector in this country, which as far as the production is concerned and the quality of what, the work we do and the care that is taken is second to none globally. Um, mm -hmm. Would you just provide us uh, an overview sense, your overview sense, of what the realities are and what the necessity is? I guess what I'm trying to tell you, ask you to do is tell us what you told the Senate in, uh, in May. Sure. Well, first of all, let me begin by saying that when the federal government decided to take a look at the NEB, they did send out a group of people um, to take to have some conversations. And when I presented to them, they indicated to me that I was the only municipally elected official that had ever presented to them. So we do take this uh, very seriously, and I stand by what I say because my husband and I have a son in Texas, in the Permian Basin in Midland, and we've had um, we've been down there a couple times in the last uh, 12 months. And when they tell me that they are um, starting to adapt Canadian technology and Canadian safety standards because of um, how good they are, you know for a fact that we're doing an excellent job. So, sorry, go ahead. Question, yeah, so to your question, um, it, when it comes to Bill C-48 and Bill C-69, we take things, as I mentioned, uh, very seriously. But those particular bills uh, took no, there was no recognition of the advanced technology that has been recognized by our neighbors or the potential for more technology. Um, the, I often talk about how my dad used to drive a tractor around the field five times to do five things, and now in the agricultural industry, they drive that tractor around f once to do five things. So we can celebrate innovation and technology and being more efficient, effective, and leaving a lighter footprint if we have a better Canadian understanding of our resource industries. We've lost that understanding and respect for our resource industries. We have, and and I think it's become far too easy to uh, go into one camp, except that I'm in this camp and I'll have nothing to do with the other people. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to hear from them. Yeah. Uh, they're bad. I'm good. All of us on this side are good, and all of you on the other side are bad. Uh -huh. that is, that's, that's developed now, and that's something that we have to learn to deal with. We still need to communicate with one another. Yeah, that divisive conversation needs to end. And I'm, I'm very happy to say that uh, Mayor Lisa Helps from Victoria and I have been talking about that exact thing. And uh, we are hoping to uh, co-host a session at the Union of BC Municipalities 
on that particular topic um, about energy and, and how do we move forward with energy because honestly the way things are going Roy we may wind up having it forced upon us if we keep saying no 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 then we're going to go on a hundred mile energy diet or a hundred mile resource diet you think about where cities like Toronto and Vancouver are going to get their resources from well, exactly. There's there's no hiding. There's there's no there's no escaping what's going on. This it's not just a case of well, it's happening in Saskatchewan, it's happening in Alberta, so it's not affecting us. No, that's not that's not even remotely close. If it's happening there in the producing area of, of Canada, the production area, it's certainly going to happen in the consumption area. Absolutely. The um, and the and I tell people that the reality is that. Um, the energy industry is producing and has not stopped producing because of consumer demand. I listened to a radio show, and I wish I could remember who the lady was. It was a guest on Anna Maria Tremonte, and she said that when we were growing up, we learned about the three R's, and all we've done really is looked at recycling. And because of that, and I'll stick my thoughts in here, because of that, we think we walk on water and we're fabulous. Well, recycling is not working. So we need to learn how to reduce and reuse. Mm -hmm. I think that the energy literacy out there is uh, just shy of pathetic. People walk past a light switch and turn it on. If they're cold, they turn their thermostat up. They need to charge their iPhone or whatever they have. They plug it in, but they don't understand the technology and the infrastructure behind that. The millions of people who are working to provide that particular commodity to them safely each and every day. And if you shut that off and you plug in that mobile phone of yours, nothing's going to happen. Exactly. So, you know, when we work with the resources in our backyard, our, what we say to them is, you need to leave us better off. And so rather than, and I have a hydroelectric dam being built as we speak, seven kilometers from my downtown. That's the Site C project in, uh, in British Columbia. Right. So when we talk about, um, you know, these, these resource projects, we don't jump in there with both feet with our pom-poms saying, yay, let's go. We talk about how is that industry going to leave us better off. We have a, a official community plan. We have a vision of what our community is going to look like in 20, 30 years. And how will that project knock us off that vision? We need to understand that. It means talking at great length to our communities. But what we've done is we have a precedent-setting community measures agreement for that particular project. We ensure that the economic, social, and community and financial impacts are fully mitigated and compensated by either that industry or government. They're the ones that get the lion's share of the taxes. How much trouble are we in? How much trouble are we in? I think if the divisive conversation continues, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. I think the, uh, the fact that a lot of this stuff has been politicized means that we no longer trust the institutions that we have that have been created to look after these things. And that was part of the Bill uh, C-69. I think it was uh, Section 17 that talked about the minister's ability to make changes. We're going to be in deep 
trouble if this conversation continues to be political. Well, this is what I was going to suggest to you, and I have to take a break here in a second, but when, when we talk about the the institutions we have in place or the systems we have in place, the regulations we've had in place for some significant period of time, the regulations that affect what's going on now in the oil fields in, in Alberta, the, in the energy sector generally, they're being manipulated by political agenda as opposed to the understanding and and really feeding the requirements and the needs of the country. It's become it's become an, a need to win a, a political race as opposed to taking care of what you're supposed to pragmatically be administering. Absolutely. And you you need to ensure that the government has in its um, you know, in those institutions the ability to be unfettered in their decisions. The the decision makers need to be able to do that, knowing that they're not going to have that changed by... But you and I both know, you and I both know that legislation is introduced and then it's passed and uh, uh, legislatures and governments are comfortable in the knowledge that... Okay, so we'll take credit for passing this, but it's going to go to the courts anyway. So the court will maybe overrule us, so we'll say, okay, so we'll go with the court. It's it's manipulation of an issue, manipulation of a, of a reality that we just cannot afford to continue to uh, to manipulate. Yep. Mayor Rackerman, let me ask you to do two things in the three minutes we have left. Tell us about uh, your community of Fort St. John, and tell us, please, uh, to take us back to that letter of 2016 and your ultimate message to Canadians. Sure. Well, thank you for that. Um, so we're about 225 years old here. We have been around for that length of time, although we were in- incorporated, I think, in 48. Um, but we started when Alexander Mackenzie came up the piece, and uh, the fur industry started. Um, a lot of this area opened up when the uh, Alcan Highway was built during World War II up to Alaska. We are on the Alaska Highway. So um, a lot of the veterans came home. Um, so we have... Uh, forestry, we have agriculture, we have uh, petroleum products, both natural gas and oil, and we also um, have diversifying. We've got a couple of uh, really good breweries in town now. So uh, we've been resource-based right from right from the get-go. We recognize uh, the resource industries. We appreciate them. And uh, those building those strong businesses that support those industries is important because those uh, entrepreneurs then turn around and contribute in a significant way to our hospital foundation, our women's resource center, and our child development center. I think we have the best child development center in uh, Western Canada. So there's the interdependence, right? Oh, absolutely. You have to build a community for people. Right. And we recognize that. And we also, you know, we're not here to, um, you know, make sure that the industry moves forward. The industry has to stand on its own feet, and it does a remarkable job of that if you only listen to it. So, um, you know, and, and part of building that community is listening to those uh, forces and, and those issues that are happening uh, in Canada. And so I'm very proud to say that, first of all, we've, um, we've just had our fourth annual Pride Parade here. Uh, we recognize that uh, there's a lot of cold case files, although we are not on the Highway of Tears. 
We recognize there's cold case files, and Council, for the second year in a row, has contributed extra money to our RCMP to digitize those cold case files. We've already had, just in one year, a um, arrest and conviction of a sexual assault. So we've taken ownership of that, and we're working with our First Nations locally here on some reconciliation. And in the uh, 45 seconds we have left, I hate looking at the clock, but I have to. I know. (laughs) What's the the fundamental message again in that letter of 2016 that you sent to all Canadians? You know, I I sent it because you had talked just before you went on break on what side you were on. Well, Roy, I'm on Canada's side. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to have construction, constructive conversation. And people just need to understand that fear is not the basis for any good conversation. So we need to let that go. And we need to trust each other as Canadians that we're doing a damn good job of this. We have to work on it. And uh, over the next four months, we're going to find out just how much division there is in this country as we head toward the 21st of October. Hopefully after that, pragmatism sets in because I've been saying forever, once you're elected, during the campaign, you can say whatever you want, do whatever you want to get votes, you know, within reason. And then after that, your job is to pragmatically govern the affairs of the people. That's for the job. all the people. Absolutely. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Roy. Have a wonderful day. You too. Mayor Laurie Ackerman from Fort St. John, British Columbia. Earlier today uh, on my Twitter account, at the Roy Green Show, I tweeted this. Let me go back to pre-Mr. Premier days for a second. Doug, you're in charge of governing Canada's largest province following the liberal fiscal wrecking ball. Change course and, if necessary, advisors. And this was after a global news story that uh, Premier Doug Ford's chief of staff, Dean French, resigns. My good friend Joe Warmington knows the ins and outs of the Ontario government and the Ford administration better than anyone else I know. And uh, I want to talk to Joe about about this and also the Danforth shooting report that came out, uh, the Toronto police issuing the report yesterday. Doug, let's, uh, uh, Doug, um, Mr. Premier, Mr. Premier Warmington, (laughs) Joe, let's let's start out. Good to have you with us. Well, I'll tell you, if... If I were Premier, we'd both have the day off today, but we don't, so. <laughs> and if I were Premier, we'd have the week off. All right, <laughs> so so Global News was the first to report the controversial appointments of Tyler Albrecht, 26-year-old yeah, friend of the now uh, former Chief of Staff Dean French's son, right? As right. Agent General for Ontario in New York City. Good job, 164 grand a year. They didn't offer it to either of us. No, they didn't. And in London, there was to be Taylor Shields, who's... I understand a cousin to Dean French's wife. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? Just stupid. I mean, it's the stupidest thing I think I've ever heard. It's not just the, you know, the appointments, but, you know, on the very day that they're trying to revamp the whole thing and reset it with the cabinet shuffle and you, you blow it again, just like they blew it with the budget that they didn't, you know, have a very, they didn't cut very much in the budget. In fact, they had added to it and yet they took the hit as if they did cut it. So something had to give. And, uh, you know, the whole thing is just it's just crazy. If you're not going to, if you're going to sit there and talk about it, and I do, I do it all the time, as do you, other governments uh, doing things like this at worst than that, you know, hiring people to go in and wipe out email accounts and things like that, then you've got to be above reproach. And, you know, so I knew that Dean French was in trouble. He, You know, he he's not the devil that, people try to make him out to be. I mean, people usually aren't. He's a, he's in politics, and just like Gerald Butts isn't the devil that 
people try to make them out to be. But you still have to answer, you know, the call and be ethical. Yeah, you know, Joe, they knew what was necessary. They campaigned on cleaning up the government and taking care of the financial mess as much as they possibly could out of the gate. And but it's been stumble, and then another stumble, and another stumble. And you're starting to see it reflected in the polling. People are wondering what's going on and whether the well, premier's in charge or somebody up. else is in charge. Well, sure, the left and the liberals are in, still in charge, and the Toronto Star and Global and all those places. And you got great reporters at those places like Travis Danrich, who are not going to, you're not going to fool him. He's going to dig out things like that. So, but yeah, I mean, Doug's got to stop worrying about what the liberals think of him and focus on what he's supposed to do in there. Why is it in there? Exactly. He can't reverse every five minutes. I mean, the Ron Tavener case with the OPP is the best example. I knew once that happened and he reversed it. And I, you know, I even said in columns, just forget about this integrity thing. Appoint the guy. That's the guy you want. We all know Ron Tavener was, was qualified. I mean, you know, this business of well, he wasn't qualified. He was only, 50 years on the job he's one of the best cops i ever you know i've ever known and um you know the guy that's in there now is very good too and i understand there's always sour grapes with these things but you can't reverse it you know if you're the leader of a province or whatever you got to get it right and you know as long as it's not really wrong you should stay the course how's it playing you know the people inside the party you know the mp mpps and you know the, the, the decision makers within the, within the government. How's it playing inside the Progressive Conservative Party? The, all the stuff that's happening now that's that's bubbling over into the public arena. How are they handling it? Well, I don't know everybody in there, but you know, it's. I think there's a lot of people that are pretty pretty upset. I mean, I mean, wouldn't you be? I mean, the yes, thing, I would. The things just not the, the truck's yes, not running. I would. You, you know what it is? Is that. I don't know if I can answer that that well. I know that people are upset. I think that there is an idea that they're going to reboot this and have a better time going forward because now you've got the guy that should have been the finance minister in the job. That's Rod Phillips. And I think Vic Fidelli is a great guy, but he shouldn't have been finance minister. But there was loyalty there. Just like uh, Chrissy Nelly, it probably shouldn't have been full health minister. That's a pretty big portfolio she'd been out of, even though she was in that field. It was more of a political appointment because of, of loyalty and because of the leadership race. So now they've done it the way they should have done it, which is to split it up. So I think you're going to see better things ahead, although who the hell knows, because I've said that how many times now. And uh, the bottom line is the leadership. And Doug Ford has got to, you know, get uh, a little bit more. He's, he, you know, his new chief of staff, whoever that's going to be. And James Wallace, who's my old editor, is the interim and he's he was the second in command i think it's going to end up being him because he knows the media and he's not a guy that likes to you know he likes to calm everybody down i know i work for him you want to go with a story full tilt and he'd be like whoa 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 here's the things that could happen so i think doug kind of needs that but i think more than anything else it even comes back to your show you and i both know doug well um and you could get him on the phone anytime, and he'd be Doug. And he was always really easy to deal with, a common sense person. And it seems like the Doug that we know is not the Doug Ford that we remember from before. Yeah, it's almost like they've got you know tape over his mouth and handcuffs on him. And I don't, I don't know what it is, 
I would cut all that loose if I were him and just be Doug. People want Doug. They don't want a politically correct premier. They don't want a liberal premier. They would have elected one if they did. They don't want an NDP premier. They would have done that. They want Doug. And, yeah, sure, the Toronto Star might not like it all the time in the CBC. Who the hell cares? I don't care. Do you care? Not a bit. Not a bit. He needs to, you're right, he needs to be who he was. He needs to be the guy who appealed to the voters. He needs to be the premier of the province, leading the province in the manner he said he would. I'll give you a good example. You know, when I was at the Raptor Parade, I was backstage there when he came in. Great chat with him. I hadn't talked to the guy in a long time. He doesn't answer my text anymore because these guys always have these sycophants around them. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but you know what I mean. And they keep them away from the Roy Greens and the Joe Warmingtons or whatever, Sue Ann Levy, the people that kind of have been with, you know, covered them all along and know him. And we'll always give him a good shot when he deserves it or when Rob was there. But we're not haters. We don't hate him. So, you know, if he deserves it, fine. Next time you give him a pat in the back, if he deserves it, it's a fair shake with us. And he's not able to, to talk to us or communicate with us anymore. People do that to these guys all the time. And they lose track of their base, if you will. If the people that, they're, that they know aren't going to sort of mess them up on purpose for, for pleasure. A good chat with them about it. And you know, we talked about this booing business, you know. And I said, when you go on that stage, you're, you're, you might get booed up there. And he said, well, I'm not going to go up there. I'm, not, I'm just here to, you know, ha- uh, hang out with the Raptors and have a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, pat them on the back and all that uh, meritory and Prime Minister Trudeau handle that end of it. But he got talked into going up there. And he was sort of at a catch-22 in a way. But I knew what was going to happen when they introduced him. It was almost, it almost felt like a setup, really. And as far as the booze go, some of the tapes make it seem like there's lots of booing and others it's sort of a murmur i was there and you could hear some booze but it was also you know kind of orchestrated too people were kind of it wasn't like the one which i didn't like either on premier ray at the blue jays um in 93 i think and 92 where it was just deafening booze it was and i I didn't like that that. Um, i don't think you should boo people and treat people badly just because you don't agree with them politically. There are times when you can uh, dis- express your displeasure, and there are times that's just not a good idea. Hey, Joe, in the two and a half minutes that we have left, uh, the Danforth shooting, what do you make of the police report? Well, they got to get back to work. I mean, and, and I think they're going to, and we've made that point. Um, I understand why they brought it out, Roy. You know, they wanted to do it before the one-year anniversary, get it done. You know, it's kind of like, well, we don't know. Mental health, uh, oh, shucks. It's just not fine. Uh, this guy, he had terror uh, tapes and files and, you know, all this stuff about Manassian and Elliot Roger, which is that whole incel thing. What he, his ideology was violence. That's what his ideology was. And something triggered it. It says right in the report that they were talking about him wanting to get married. His brother had said that, and then an hour later he killed two girls and and shot 13 more, and he would have uh, done more. He spared one guy, though, and I'd like to explore that further. Why that one guy? He talked to him and said, don't worry, I'm not going to shoot you. Was it because he was male? Or was there other reasons? The other thing, too, Roy, is the trip to Pakistan. I mean, come on. They didn't go to Pakistan. 
and they say, well, we couldn't figure it out. Do you want help? I mean, I'll help them. I, I can figure it out. I find people all over the world for my job. doesn't take very much work to do that. And if I had a police badge, I could do it a lot faster. So I like Chief Saunders a lot. And Terry Brown's one of my favorite detectives. I call him downtown Terry Brown. I know they're in a tough spot there, and I understand yep. that there's pressure from, you know, federal government, et cetera. But come on, let's tell the truth about what happened there. Deserve at least that. People deserve that, and the truth isn't being told. Not the whole truth. We don't know everything that happened. Well, there's lots we of don't know what they know, and we have the right to know that. Joe, I always appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. You're you're an honest guy 100% of the time. I'm on my way to Ford Fest, and I hope I didn't mess that up. I want my free burger, although I never have had one because the lineups are too long. But I'm, I'm dreaming about one of those things. If somebody pushes you away, you'll know why. All the best. Talk to you soon, Joe. Thanks you so much. you got to be premier so we can get the weekend yeah, off sure. sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. On my way. All right. <laughs> Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun. He really is one of the best. And I mean it. Honest as the day is long. Joe gives it to you the way that he sees it and understands it. And that's how he reports. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.